Last week we started a study of the book uh, on the Bible, a book traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles, or just simply Acts. And I read a few verses in chapter 1, and I said, okay, I've just read these. You're going to have to wait till next week for us to explain them. And what I read was from chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. By the way, if you want to follow along today, uh, the first part of this is on page 1655, page 1655. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 from chapter 1. I read them last week, but let me read them again today. Luke, the author of this book, writes, On one occasion while he, that's Jesus, was eating with them, that's his disciples, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So very end there, he mentions the Holy Spirit. Uh, you may have heard the Christian understanding of God is that God is three and one, that he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, while the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, the concept is clearly assumed. Particularly, we see it explained in the New Testament in different ways. Trinity is the idea that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, yet distinct. Each one, Father, Son, and Spirit, um, is fully God, yet each is a person, unique with distinct identity, yet fully united. So let me give you a little bit of an illustration. I have a friend who had a teenage daughter, this is several years ago, and she came to him on a weeknight and asked for permission to go out with a friend that night. And uh, he said, did you ask your mother? And she kind of groaned and said, yes. And so my friend said, what did she say? She said, I'm not going to tell you. I want to know what you think. And he thought about it for a moment. He said, okay, it's a school night. Is your homework done? No. He said, okay, no. And she said, I knew you'd say that. And uh, he said, uh, and then she said, your mom, your, you and mom always say the same thing. So this analogy will break down in just a moment. But like my friend and his wife, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are always on the same page. Okay, you get the unity there. Now, let's uh, go forward from there. Getting our heads around the idea of the Trinity is difficult. For one, just try to describe each person of the Trinity. Now, God may be a little bit easier than some of the others. For example, God, you can think of, not maybe in physical terms, but conceptually, as an all-powerful force, creator of the universe who's active in the world today. And Jesus, perhaps the easiest to visualize because we can imagine him. We've been, we've given, we have four biographies in the New Testament that tell us about this person who became one of us, lived a life in our world, so we can imagine what that might be like. But the Holy Spirit, that's the member of the Trinity that we have the hardest time describing. Now, let me just also say, for some of you, even thinking about the Holy Spirit makes you nervous, because many of the weird things that Christians do get blamed on the Holy Spirit. You can visit churches where people will laugh hysterically because they say they've been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And other churches where people fall down on the ground and growl like animals and, again, claiming to be inspired by the Spirit. And if you're anything like me, all that creeps you out. Now, I know that not all of you would call yourselves Christians. Michelle just talked about going into Alpha, trying to explore what Christian faith meant. And I know that many of you are in the same place. You are thinking about what Christian faith is all about, but you're not yet there. And we understand. We're just glad you're here. We respect you in that whole process. Um, Alpha is a great way for you to learn more. But we know that at the beginning of your faith journey, 
The Holy Spirit can be one of the concepts that may have you scratching your head. Michelle said in the first service that it was one of the the concepts that just was very difficult for her to understand. So that said, I do hope today that you might get a glimpse of what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit, because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate truth, to inspire and clarify and help us understand um, more about God. So if you're at the beginning of a faith journey, you may understand maybe even in the last few weeks, something that used to confuse you. You may be finding yourself moving along a little bit and getting more understanding as you go. And what you may not realize is that is a product of the Holy Spirit at work in you already. Now, if you're already a Christian, you may have discovered how the Holy Spirit brings new things into our lives, new attitudes, new desires, new skills, abilities, new understanding that we otherwise would not have. So the Holy Spirit helps us when we're weak and feel inadequate to do what God's given us to do. And the Holy Spirit helps us break bad habits, even addictions. So when we think of the Holy Spirit, if we think of the Holy Spirit at all, we do so often in vague terms. And the imagery of the Bible doesn't maybe help us uh, as much as we might like because the descriptions are often using analogies like wind or fire or there's the presence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' baptism when it descended upon him like a dove. One of the most common metaphors used in the Bible to describe the Holy Spirit is wind. It's used both in the Old Testament and New Testament. The word for spirit means literally wind or breath. And one of the things we know about the wind is we can't see it, but we can see its effects. Now, um, let me just take, I've got a dollar bill here, and I'm going to ask maybe a student or two to predict what's going to happen when I blow on the dollar bill from the bottom. So, Allie, why don't you tell me what you think is going to happen? Come, it's not that hard. (laughs) Okay. Goes up, doesn't it? So I blew on the bottom and it went up. Now, I want you to predict what's going to happen now when I blow on the top. What's going to happen? It'll blow down? Well, let's see what happens. It didn't do what you predicted, did it? So what I've done is basically make this into the shape of an airplane wing. And the differential in air pressure creates lift. So now all I'm doing really is saying that wind is something we can't see, but we can see the effects of it. By the way, that's the reason an airplane lifts, that differential in pressure. Didn't mean to catch you with that. But um, the point is, is that wind is something while we can't see, we can see the effects, whether it's in the lift of an airplane or if you see a tree that blows over in a storm. You can see the effects, and so that same thing is true with the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit by the effects not necessarily seeing the Spirit in physical flesh or any other way. Now, the Holy Spirit in the Bible was, uh, in the Old Testament, was depicted as an inconsistent presence. There are places where the Holy Spirit's involved, for example, in creation, and there are numerous references in the Old Testament to the Spirit guiding people at important times and places, including kings and prophets and others, but the Spirit was not a consistent presence. Instead, was just available to particular people, particular times for particular purposes. And then Jesus arrived on the scene. And like the prophets and others in the Old Testament, Jesus is described as empowered by the Spirit to live out his mission, but not intermittently, consistently. But as Jesus taught, he began to say 
and drop hints that one day everything would be different. He promised that one day they too, his disciples, would receive this incredible gift. Not just for a few, for a particular moment, but for everyone in all times and places. And that is why what I read at the beginning this morning is so important. Jesus said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until this gift of the Holy Spirit becomes yours. And then in verse 8 of chapter 1, he adds, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So he says this one of the roles of the Spirit is to empower him to tell others about Jesus. Now at that point, as we described last week, Jesus ascended up into heaven and was gone. For three years, they taught, he taught them, comforted them, given them perspective and hope, but now he was gone And yet they had this promise that in a few days, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so they waited in Jerusalem. They waited one day, two days, and three days. And then 10 days, 10 days later, they were all gathered together, most likely in the courtyard outside the temple, and something dramatic happened. And this is in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Luke describes what took place. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So here they were gathered outside the temple most likely when something that sounded like wind and something else that looked like fire or flames of fire came to rest on each of them and immediately they are able to speak in the languages of the people who were gathered there, people from nations all over the ancient world. And then Luke continues, verse 5, they were staying, there they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are here speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So this is a little bit of a slam on Galileans. They were probably like Americans. They only knew one language, so they couldn't imagine how they would be speaking to everyone else. But Luke says that there were in that crowd that day Jews who had scattered over time in the last couple hundred years to different places around the world. And maybe they knew a little Hebrew, but it wasn't their native tongue or native language. And they were able to hear what was being said in their language. And he gives a long list. If you look in one of the Pew Bibles, you'll see a long list of places they came from, kind of, kind of a wide variety of areas around the known ancient world. And then he sums it up this way in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So they're amazed at what they've experienced. Many saw it as supernatural evidence that God was there among them, but there were some others who were skeptical. They looked for a natural explanation. Verse 13, they've had too much wine. So here you are, one group of people says this is supernatural, and the other group say they're just drunk. So what is it? Well, Peter stood up and began to explain. And here's what he began with in verse 14. He said, he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, so the bars aren't even open. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's what's going on. Paul, or excuse me, Peter is taking the side of those who believe that something supernatural had taken place. But he goes even further. He says, what you've experienced is something that has been predicted for a long time. Then he reads this extended quote from the Old Testament book of Joel, from this prophet, as proof that the Holy Spirit is no longer just for a few people in a particular place, in a particular time, for particular purposes, but for all people in all times. In fact, he says, what you've just experienced is precisely what Joel predicted, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the key phrase here, um, it's I think in verse 20, when he says in the la- uh, verse 17, he says the last days, verse 20, I think he says um, the, uh, the uh, uh, day of the Lord. And that is, uh, refers to a conception, the way that ancient people, the ancient Jews saw the world. They believed that time, history, was divided into two parts. The first part was what they called the present age. This they described as an utterly evil time, a time when the world was doomed to destruction. But that wasn't the last thing to come. They believed that there was another day coming called the age to come, a completely different time that would see the golden age of God. But there was a transition point in time that they called the day of the Lord. Now, it's not literally a day. It's a period of time when you transition, when they expected a transition from this present evil age to the glorious age of the age to come. And that day of the Lord, the prophets had predicted would come suddenly, would shake the world to its foundation. It would be a time of judgment and terror as well as a day of joy and hope. And what Peter is saying is for generations, you've dreamed about this transition and it's here. The day of the Lord has come. And then Peter began to speak to the crowd about Jesus. Beginning in verse 22, he says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So many of them who were there that day had seen Jesus perhaps change water into wine or some other miracle, and so they knew he had done some amazing things. Peter's point here is, at least in part, he wants to make the case that Jesus was a human being. Years later, there would be a debate among some of the early Christians about whether Jesus really was a physical human being or just a kind of ghost-like figure. Peter's insisting here that Jesus was really human. And yet he was different. He was also divine, 100% human and 100% divine. And the evidence for his divinity was that he was empowered by God to perform miracles and other actions with spiritual significance. So Peter wants to make the case for that. Now, during his lifetime... Um, Jesus encountered serious opposition, and in the end, things went tragically wrong. So in verse 23, Peter talks about that. He says, this man, meaning Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Even though some evil men were responsible for Jesus' death, he wants to make the point that this still worked out 
in accordance with God's will. So there were jealous Jews and indifferent Romans who came together and made the decision to get rid of Jesus. And uh, he's making the point that this still happened according to God's plan. But he also wants to make sure they understand that Jesus really died. I don't know if that day, but there were times in, uh, around this time and period where people said, well, Jesus didn't really die. He, he swooned. He looked like he was dead. You put him in this cool tomb and he revived. Peter's making the case, no, he really died. Now, let me just pause for a second and uh, address something that may, for at least a few of you, come up when you read a text like this. And that is, occasionally, you'll hear people say that the Jews killed Jesus. Now, that's not what Luke tells us. Let me just explain why. Sure, some of those, in fact, many of those involved in the trial of Jesus were Jews. And some of the same people who were in the crowd that day hearing Peter speak had been involved in that trial. They'd maybe been part of the crowd that day. And they were Jews. But the issue isn't that they were Jews. In fact, Peter's, Jesus' disciples, including Peter, were Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew. So Peter is saying, in fact, in another sermon, Peter said, but you acted in ignorance, even though you thought you were doing God's will. So Peter's point here is not to blame an entire people group, but only individual Jews and individual Romans for their actions. There have been some through history who've tried to blame Jews as a race, as a people group, for the death of Jesus, and they're totally missing the point. We ourselves, had we been there at the time, could well have fallen into the same trap of those and been part of that crowd demanding the death of Jesus. So Luke, in telling this story, and Peter, in preaching this sermon, are not saying that it's the Jews' fault. It's individual people who've made difficult and evil decisions. Now, regardless of the death of Jesus, God's purposes are being worked out, and that's what Peter points to next. That death isn't the last or the end of the story. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So with the death of Jesus, Satan believed that he had won. But Peter said, no, he was wrong. God showed his power over evil, his power over sin and death when he raised Jesus back to life from the dead. And then Peter takes a detour And he goes to look at some writing from uh, King David in Psalm chapter 16, where David predicted a resurrection. I'm not going to read this, but what David essentially said is that there is going to be a resurrection. But Peter points out he's not talking about himself because David later died and was buried, and you can go look at his tomb. But he did point to one who would be resurrected, and that person is Jesus. Verse 31, seeing what was to come, he, that's David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life. And then he adds a personal touch, which would have been important in telling his audience about this. He says, and we were all witnesses of it. In other words, me and others here saw Jesus when he was raised from the dead. Why should you believe, he said? Because the prophets, like David, predicted it. And we saw him with our own two eyes. Now, this is really important. One of the, most, uh, one of the, the many reasons I believe Jesus rose from the dead is the way that Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday, the effect that it had on his disciples. And take Peter, for example. If you know his own personal biography, you know that Jesus, toward the end of his time here on earth, predicted that Peter would deny him. Peter insisted, no, I will not do that. I'll even go to the death for you. But essentially, 
Jesus was right. Not long after Jesus was arrested, Peter denied Jesus three different times, even cursing, boldly telling everyone he knew that he didn't know Jesus because he was so afraid. And now here he is, seven weeks later, in front of a huge crowd, boldly telling everyone who would listen that something has happened that changed the world forever. That something is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So Peter believed this was good news for him and good news for everyone. And he and the others were filled with new joy and courage and a sense of God's presence and power. The early Christians, to them, this resurrection was all important. It's no exaggeration to say that without the resurrection, there would be no Christian church. They spoke from experience when they talked about Jesus. After he was executed, they were a bewildered, broken people. Their dreams were gone. Their hopes were shattered. They went into hiding, afraid of their lives, for their lives. But once they saw Jesus, everything changed. They went from being cowards to being heroes. And so boldly, now a completely different Peter, changed by his knowledge of the resurrection, continues and he tells this crowd, the reasons for these dramatic events is because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and he's fulfilled his promise to give us this gift, the Holy Spirit. And he concludes his sermon in verse 36 saying this, therefore, all Israel, because all those who were gathered that day were Jewish, we could include us now, he says, All Israel, be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. His resurrection from the dead shows that he is the king of the world. Now, Peter covered a lot of ground in just a few short verses. He described how Jesus' miracles, wonders, and signs showed his unique authority. He showed how nothing here was random, that all had happened to fit in with God's plan that was predicted by the prophets, something important to his Jewish listeners. He pointed out that Jesus really died, not just swooned and sort of was revived because of the cool air of the tomb. And he argued persuasively that Jesus rose from the dead, something Peter and the others could make the case from, from personal experience. And the reaction to Peter's sermon was dramatic. They took his words personally. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Now they understood their own sin and guilt. For some, what they heard about Jesus was a shock. They had not expected this. They'd been part of the crowd that day that had condemned Jesus to death. And they thought they were doing the right thing. But now they understood differently. Peter's argument connecting Jesus to Old Testament prophecy and the news of the resurrection forced them to see the whole event in an entirely different point of view. The only thing they could think of to say was, what shall we do? What shall we do? What's most surprising is that these were people who previously did not think they had a need. They were good Jews and they had it all together. And sometimes we're exactly like them. We underestimate our need. We think we have it together. But we'd be wise to look more carefully at what Peter said that day. We, like those who were listening, are sinners. And sure, we didn't participate in Jesus' execution, but we might have had we been there, and we've certainly done other things in rebellion against God. Maybe something equally wrong. Now, to their question, what shall we do? Peter replied. He says, repent and be baptized. And by the way, baptism here is a symbol of belief. It's a symbol, um, a physical expression of of showing your belief in Christ. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, 
for all whom the Lord our God will call. So what do you need to do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, or repent and believe. So what does that mean? Well, repentance is more than just knowing the magic phrase needed to enter into the wizard's castle. Repentance involves first a sense of remorse, an acknowledgement of need, and then it's to see Jesus in a new light and commit to a change of direction, to turn from one way of life to another, to begin to change how you live. And the belief part, it's to understand what Jesus has done for you and to respond with faith. In Acts chapter 16, a few years later, um, Luke records another story of another sermon, this time by Paul. And Paul is asked a question by someone who says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul replies, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Belief in the Lord Jesus is to put your faith in his life, death, and resurrection. So repentance and belief help us to deal with our past. It's God's forgiveness for what lies behind us. The consequences may remain in some ways, but in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we're put right with God. And repentance gives us resources for the future. The gift of the Holy Spirit gives us power to win battles that we never thought possible to win, to resist temptation. And that brings freedom, freedom from guilt, freedom from moral corruption and judgment, self-centeredness, and the freedom to be the people that God has created us to be. And all that's required is to repent, to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. And then he says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So to everyone who responds to Jesus with repentance and faith is given this gift of the Holy Spirit, not just for a moment, but in all times and places, the indwelling presence of the power of God in our lives. Now, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to help us understand truth. So here's a question for you today, especially if you're seeking. Does this message of Jesus make sense to you for the first time? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is helping you see truth in a brand new way? Here's what you need to hear. You may well feel exactly like the people that heard Peter speak that day. You may feel cut to the heart, but know that God does not intend for you to stay there. Let Jesus rescue you. Allow the death and resurrection of Jesus to be the foundation of your life. Accept the salvation that comes in him. Salvation not just for eternity, but for here and now as well. And so Luke then concludes the story of this sermon in this particular chapter in Christian history this way. Verse 40, he says, With many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is a remarkable day. 3,000 people came to know Jesus, became Christians that day. One of the consistent themes of Acts is the way people respond to the message of Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in their lives. This is perhaps the most dramatic experience in the entire book. But it's an experience that shows us and illustrates what happens in our lives when the Holy Spirit illuminates and helps us to understand truth. There's really nothing more important than I can share with you than the message that Peter talked about that day, the very first Christian sermon where he talked about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And there's nothing more important that you can do than to do what the people did to that day in response to what Peter said. What shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Again, a symbol of belief. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all uh, whom the Lord our God will call. Let's pray. Father, this is a dramatic experience and a dramatic day at the beginning of the history of the Christian church. Thank you for the way that uh, this has been preserved for us so we can see what Peter taught that day. We can see this demonstration of power, the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes to each one of us when we make a decision to, to follow you, to choose to repent and believe in Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the way that this changed history um, and has changed our lives. I pray if there are any here who are still trying to figure this out, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, give them the understanding they need to be able to make this decision, to become a follower of Jesus today. We pray this in his name. Amen.